Episode 20, How God Values People. Rethinking the Bible with Jack Pelham. Welcome to Rethinking the Bible. This is an audio podcast where we apply reality-based thinking to interpreting the Bible. Reality-based thinking is my name for a philosophy that seeks to make constant use of honesty, rationality, and responsibility in seeking out the reality of things while trying to avoid common errors. And for the record, I define reality as the state of things as they actually exist, as opposed to one's perceptions, beliefs, or wishes about them. And you should know, this is a serial podcast, so it's best if you start from episode one and work your way forward from there, because we lay some foundational principles up front and you'll be lost later if you skip them now. I'm so excited to get to this podcast today, uh, this episode rather. Uh, there's so much to talk about, and boy, is it hard to decide each week uh, which, or each opportunity I have, which thing to cover next. Uh, I am not finished with our last discussion about Hebrews 11 and 12, especially the 12 part, but uh, this week I wanted to talk about how God values people, and I want to trace this back all the way to the beginning about God cares how you think well. Does he care if you think poorly? Uh, does that have anything to do with how he values you? Uh, you know, God cares if you live in the image and likeness of God. Well, what if you don't? Does that have any effect on how he values you or not? A lot of people would say no. And I think that's wrong. I think they're uh, cheating. I think this is a, a bad answer. But somebody might come forward and say, well, look, uh, Jack, it, it's settled very easily. John 3.16 the most beloved passage probably in the whole Bible, at least if you're into football. <laughs> uh, it says, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. So see, Jack, God wants everybody to have eternal life, and uh, that settles it. God loves everybody. In fact, uh, you'll hear the phrase, God loves everybody, You'll also hear a little bit more sophisticated uh, expression when people say, well, you need to hate the sin, but love the sinner. Well, okay, I know that's a very popular stance, but I think it's a little short-sighted. I think it's a little under-reflected upon. And so let me throw out a couple of test uh, questions for you. How about Psalm 111? How does this go across in, uh, in light of your doctrine about how God values people? Uh, Psalm 11, uh, verse 5. The Lord examines the righteous, but the wicked, those who love violence, he hates with a passion. Does that fit into your view of how God values people? Or you know the passage that says, uh, Esau I have hated, and Jacob I have loved. How does that fit in? What do you do when you hear a passage like that? Do you just sort of ignore it and do a little uh, cognitive dissonance there. It doesn't really fit with what I believe. I'm not going to say that's not Scripture, but I'm not going to repeat that ever because it doesn't fit in well. Is that how you handle that? So I wanted to read a bunch of passages today to give you a fuller understanding of the way that God thinks about people because he seems to discern between people uh, more so than I think a lot of Christians do. And I think it will become pretty obvious after a bit of consideration just what are his uh, ways of thinking about this. So in no particular order, I'm going to read a bunch of passages I have um, searched out, and then I will discuss them as we go, and we'll see if this ends up one episode or two. In fact, I'm going to write down my starting time now so I don't have to wonder about it later. So here we go. Let's start with Proverbs verse 6. In, uh, I'm sorry, Proverbs chapter 6, verse 12. A worthless person, a wicked man, goes about with crooked speech, winks his eyes, signals with his feet, points with his finger, with perverted heart devises evil, continually sowing discord. Therefore, calamity will come upon him suddenly 
In a moment, he will be broken beyond healing. And so obviously here we have a description of a wicked person. In fact, it, it goes on. We're, we're going to talk about it even more. And yet this wicked person, it talks about the bad habits. But the very first three words, it says a worthless person. Well, why does the Bible call it that? Why don't they stop here and say, now, um, a person of worthless deeds, and, and that doesn't mean, dear reader, that the person is worthless in God's eyes. It's just their deeds are worthless. The author does not make that distinction. He describes a wicked man and gives us several of the things that the wicked man does, and he calls him a worthless person. So that's the summation of the writer. Question, is that all those, also the summation of God? Would God say the same thing? Or is the writer here going off on a limb and saying something on his own that God would not agree with? So uh, we're going to go on to the next passage, which happens to be the continuation of this one. I just read Proverbs 6, 12 through 15, and now going on with 16 through 18. There are six things the Lord hates, seven that are detestable to him. And so here they are. Haughty eyes, a lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked schemes, feet that are quick to rush into evil, a false witness who pours out lies, and a person who stirs up conflict in the community. Now again, if you're from the camp that says, oh, well, uh, hate the sin but love the sinner, then you can go down this list and pick out, you can cherry pick some things you'd like. Like, okay, the Lord hates um, haughty eyes. Sure, you'd say he hates it when somebody has haughty eyes, but you wouldn't say he hates the haughty person, right? Or you'd, uh, a lying tongue is on the list. You'd say, oh yeah, God hates it when somebody has a lying tongue, but he doesn't hate the liar. Or hands that shed innocent blood. Okay, he hates the violent people, but not... Um, I mean, he hates the violence, but not the people. Yeah, you could say that. But then you get to verse 18. The next one is a heart that devises wicked schemes. So God hates a heart. He finds this detestable. And it's difficult now to say, oh, well, uh, that's somehow different from hating the person. <laughs> you see? And then the next one is the same. Uh, let's see, feet that are quick to rush into evil. Okay, you could... You could say, yeah, he hates your feet, but not you, not your heart, not your mind, not your soul, something like that. But then verse 19, uh, he hates a false witness who pours out lies and a person who stirs up conflict in the community. So here we have God hating a heart, a false witness, and a person. And so I ask the same question, does this fit in with what you hear at church or on Christian radio? about how God values people. Because this is right out of Scripture. I'm giving you counterexamples to what is commonly taught. The next thing I have here is the parable of the weeds from Jesus, uh, Matthew 13. Let's just read this, starting in verse 24, and I'll be reading through verse 30. He put another parable before them, saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field, but while his men were sleeping, his enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat and went away. So when the plants came up and bore grain, then the weeds also appeared. And the servants of the master of the house came and said to him, Master, did you not sow good seed in your field? How then does it have weeds? He said to them, An enemy has done this. So the servants said to him, Then do you want us to go and gather them? But he said, No, lest in gathering the weeds you root up the wheat along with them. Let both grow until the harvest, and at harvest time I will tell the reapers, gather the weeds first and bind them into bundles to be burned, but gather the wheat into my barn. Why the difference? Why not treat everything in his field the same way? Do you get the feeling from this parable that he loved the weeds? Oh, I love my weeds. Uh, no. Uh, he did not think they were worth keeping. And that idea of worth or worthiness, uh, we're going to keep talking about that. So here's a distinction being made. And the question is, uh, 
what's this parable about? Is this truly about plants in a field or is this about people? Well, we'll keep going. Let's look at Hebrews 6, starting at verse 7. We're going to read 7 and 8. For land that has drunk the rain that often falls on it and produces a crop useful to those uh, for whose sake it is cultivated receives a blessing from God. But if it bears thorns and thistles, it is worthless and near to being cursed, and its end is to be burned. So here again, this idea talking about worthlessness uh, and usefulness. Uh, It says a crop is useful, but if land doesn't bear, if it bears worthless things like thorns and thistles, it's near to being cursed. Well, you can go look this up for yourself. This context is talking about the people and their lives and their righteousness and their sin and how they would live. Uh, On this idea of worthlessness, uh, Proverbs 16, uh, also, we've, we've been uh, discussing this already. It's a little later in the passage. Oh, this is Proverbs 16, not 6. And starting in verse 27, A worthless man plots evil, and his speech is like a scorching fire. A dishonest man spreads strife, and a whisperer separates close friends. A man of violence entices his neighbor and leads him in a way that is not good. Now, how does this relate to our ongoing discussion of being in God's image and in his likeness of living that way? Because we were created to be like that, and suddenly you see these people that these passages are describing are not those people. They're not the ones living that way, but living in some other way that's contrary. And so we have the idea of being useful to God or useful in God's eyes and worthless in God's eyes. Jeremiah 2, verse 5. Thus says the Lord, What wrong did your fathers find in me that they went far from me and went after worthlessness and became worthless? So here you you have some people who were with God or in God's company or somehow associated with God, and yet he says they must have found something wrong with me because they went after worthlessness and they became worthless. And this is obviously uh, not uh, something good. Matthew 25, starting at verse 24 through verse 30. This is a passage that will be familiar. It's in the middle of the, uh, the parable of the talents. It's near the end. Uh, he also who had received the one talent came forward, saying, Master, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you did not sow and gathering where you scattered no seed. So I was afraid, and I went and hid your talent in the ground. Here you have what is yours. But his master answered him, You wicked and slothful servant, you knew that I reap where I have not sown and gather where I have scattered no seed. Then you ought then you ought to have invested my money with the bankers, and at my coming I should have received what was mine with interest. So take the talent from him and give it to him who has the ten talents, for to everyone who has, more will be given, and he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away and cast the worthless servant into the outer darkness." In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. So if God loves everybody, uh, how is it that the master here in Jesus' story uh, considers this to be a worthless servant who is worthy of being in the outer darkness where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth? Why would he use the word worthless if he thought, no, this person has great value You know, in our society right now, as insane as it is, a lot of arguments are made, oh, if it will just save one life, it's all worth it. Like um, the argument to disarm this whole society of their guns or uh, even the COVID thing. Uh, I've heard this a few times, taking all these precautions, which we know are silly, like the mask that we know the virus will pass right through. But the, the response invariably, somebody will say, if you give them long enough, Oh, but if it saves just one life, it's all worth doing. And then, of course, uh, 
when the vaccines are killing some people, especially the elderly, they say, well, you know, some people will die. It's just to be expected. It's the price you pay <laughs> for having the vaccine. Well, hello, uh, for not having the vaccine, some people were going to die anyway, right? From COVID. So it's the silly, silly thing. And if we're going to say, well, God loves everybody and every life is precious to God. Hmm. Well, that doesn't really fit with these scriptures so far. And, and I could go on and on and on. Let's talk about silver and gold because the Bible talks about this a lot in comparing uh, a person or a person's life to what God wants it to be. Uh, even getting into God having intervened to uh, have people purified, as it were. Uh, you'll see what I mean. I'll just dig in here in Proverbs 17, verse 3. The crucible is for silver and the furnace is for gold. And the Lord tests hearts. So here we're getting a little lesson in, in uh, metallurgy or something along those lines, uh, how silver is purified in a crucible and gold in a furnace somehow. And I don't really understand that, but I hope I don't need to understand that. Uh, but the Lord tests hearts. So there's something going on there where God is concerned about the purity of people's hearts and he's testing them in some way. And then Proverbs 27, 21, the crucible is for silver and the furnace is for gold and a man is tested by his praise. Now that's an interesting variation. It's almost as if it's quoting the previous proverb, but there's a twist at the end. Rather than the Lord testing the heart, it has a man being tested by his praise. And I'll tell you what this brings to mind immediately is um, where Herod is on his throne. I believe we covered this in a previous podcast. Uh, he's wearing a silver robe one morning in the morning sun, and the way the sun hits him, it looks like he's glowing golden. And the people in the crowd see something like, it's the voice of God, and Herod did not uh, handle that praise right. He did not deny being God. And so God uh, struck him down, or more specifically, he had an angel strike him down uh, with worms. He was eaten basically alive by worms and had a very terribly painful death for several days. Uh, so there's a particular test of somebody being praised. Uh, and if you want to contrast that, look at the place where uh, John in the Revelation is, uh, he sees an angel who is going to tell him something or other. And in the moment, John bows down to the angel and the angel says, so we'll see to it that you do not do that. So here, here he's being praised by John, and he's, he sets him straight and says, whoa, whoa, you don't praise me. You know, I'm just a servant like you are. And so those, those are two examples that come to mind immediately. But this idea of silver and gold, this is a theme that actually runs through a lot of Scripture, not just what's in the Bible, but through a lot of the ancient Near Eastern writings. Let's look at Malachi uh, chapter 3, uh, verses 3 and or rather, verses 1 through 4. Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. Now, you probably recognize this is talking about John the Baptist. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple, and the message of the covenant in whom you delight. Behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. But who can endure the day of his coming? And who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire, and like fuller's soap, he will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver, and he will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver. And they will bring offerings in righteousness to the Lord. Then the offering of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasing to the Lord as in the days of old, as in former years. So again, this time of testing, this idea that his people would be tested and he'd be pleased with the ones who are shown to be pure. 1 Corinthians 3, verse 10 through verse 15. And this one's probably quite more familiar. According to the grace of God given to me, like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation and someone else is building on it. Now, Paul here is talking about his own ministry as an apostle. And what is his ministry? Well, it's to win people. 
And it's not just any people. He wants the faithful people for Jesus. He's not just uh, gathering uh, well-wishers or uh, people who are willing to give lip service, but he's looking for the real deal. And he's talking here about other evangelists, uh, other apostles and such. And he goes on, he says, let each one take care how he builds upon it, on that foundation. For no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now, if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become manifest, for the day will disclose it, because it will be revealed by fire, and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation I'm sorry, if the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. Now this one's a little complicated because it's Paul talking about himself and the other apostles and the evangelists who had been appointed by apostles. And so he's not talking about the rank-and-file Christian uh, who weren't in those offices. And so what he's talking about adding to this foundation is people, that each one, they were all recruiting people. Well, what kind of people are you getting? And notice that the people, and if it's not clear yet, it'll become clear in these other passages. Notice that the people here are being referred to as gold or silver or precious stones or wood or hay or straw. And it talks about being revealed by fire. Well, imagine these uh, six things in this case, gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw. If you talk about testing these things with fire, you can immediately tell that some of them are different. Uh, straw, for example, how long is that going to last in a fire? And what will be left when the fire is out? Well, uh, it won't last long at all, and there'll be nothing but ash that you can't even tell used to be straw. The same with hay. Wood takes longer, but wood still turns completely to ash, and there's nothing left that even resembles wood. Uh, the precious stones, that's interesting. I would like to look into this more. I don't know if they're to be considered among the things that would last or not. Uh, some stones might crack in fire. And I have not been able to track this one down in the brief amount of studying I did for this one. Although we will see precious stones again in an extra-biblical book uh, in just a couple of minutes. But then we have silver and gold on the list. Those two obviously are good. They come up in examples all throughout uh, these books, whether uh, biblical or extra-biblical books from the ancient Near East. And uh, obviously those have high value. Everybody knows that even to this day. Even in our economy, gold and silver are still a big deal. And so he goes on, um, oh, I had finished the passage, but uh, they would be tested by the fire. And basically the guy who built well, uh, if his work is not burned up, he's, it's going to be a reward for him. If his work is burned up, well, uh, that's really bad, but he still himself would be saved, uh, but only as through fire, it says. So, you know, why are you... Uh, an apostle for God, and yet you're not building well. You're not bringing good people into the fellowship, but you're bringing the ones who cannot pass the test, who are not worthy. That That is an issue. Now, a lot of people want to apply this passage to themselves. I think that's cheating. I don't think that there are apostles today, and I don't think that there are apostles today appointing evangelists uh, like there were in the first century. So I don't see how you can be an evangelist like the first century kind if you don't have an apostle to appoint you as that. Obviously, this will be very contentious. A lot of people would want to argue with that. But I've not yet heard a responsible argument for it. If you have one, please send it my way. So let's go on now. Let's look at another writing from Paul, this time to Timothy, not to a congregation, but to a man who was an evangelist. And uh, I'm going to look in 2 Timothy chapter 2, starting in 19. And we're going to read 19 through 21. But God's firm foundation stands, bearing this seal, quote, The Lord knows those who are his, end quote, and, quote, Let everyone who names the name of the Lord depart from iniquity, end quote. 
Notice everyone was supposed to leave the iniquity, not just some who want to call on Jesus' name and such, but every one of them. So he goes on. Now in a great house, there are not only vessels of gold and silver, but also of wood and clay, wood and clay, some for honorable use and some for dishonorable. Therefore, if anyone cleanses himself from what is dishonorable, he will be a vessel for honorable use. Notice use, as in usefulness, worthiness, that sort of thing. Uh, and set apart as holy, useful to the master of the house, ready for every good work. So if you, if you think through this one, the wood and clay, um, those are the dishonorable things. And the gold and silver, those are the honorable ones. So here again, we're making this distinction. Uh, I'd like to pull up one now from, from outside the Bible. This is from the Testament of Solomon, uh, chapter 108. It's about halfway through this very short chapter. Just to give you an idea of what was in the ancient Near Eastern culture uh, that did not make it into the Bible. Uh, so here I am. This is Testament of Solomon 108b. And having heard of the wisdom given to me, they did homage to me in the temple, bringing gold and silver and precious stones, many and diverse, and bronze and iron and lead and cedar logs. And woods decay. Uh, uh, this is awkward English, I'm sorry. And woods decay not, they brought me for the equipment of the temple of God. So that last part I wish I had not even read. <laughs> it's not particularly uh, pertinent to, to what we're talking and so uh, I will just X that out. It won't be in the uh, show notes, uh, the last part of it. So here we again, uh, bringing for the temple, they had brought uh, to Solomon gold and silver and precious stones, many and diverse, uh, that being the stones, I assume, and then bronze, iron, lead, and cedar logs. Well, some of that made it into some of these previous lists we've looked at, but not every bit. So as I've been looking for a source for this idea, it's difficult to find whether any of these previous writings were the source for this New Testament ideas or not. And so uh, now I'd like to jump also to another extra-biblical book before we get back into the, some of the stuff uh, from the Bible. And this is one I've mentioned before. It's 2 Esdras 7. You will find this, uh, for example, in the Common English Bible, which uses not only the books that are in the Protestant Bible, but the ones that are in the Catholic Bible also. Uh, so this would be considered apocryphal to some. Uh, I find the book fascinating and very useful. I'm very glad that I know it. I do find it, that it talks about a lot of the things that are in the Bible. And so I certainly would not rule it out as some dangerous work that you should not read. Uh, so... Uh, anyway, from 2 Ezra 7, I'm going to read verses 45 through 61. And again, we're talking about how God, uh, how he values people. So I want you to listen to this. Now, this is Ezra talking. Ezra is Latin for Ezra. Ezra, the scribe that you know from the Old Testament, from the book of the same name, Ezra. Uh, Ezra says, I answered and said, O sovereign Lord, I said then... Uh, and I say now, blessed are those who are alive and keep your commandments. So he's basically having sort of a, a euphoric, uh, ecstatic utterance here. Uh, and But what of those for whom I prayed? For who among the living is there that has not sinned? And who is there among the mortals that has not transgressed your covenant? And now I see that the world to come will bring delight to a few, but torments to many. For an evil heart has grown up in us, which has alienated us from God and has brought us into corruption and the ways of death and has shown us the paths of perdition and removed us far from life. And that not merely for a few, but for almost all who have been created. So Ezra is mourning the state of the world here is basically uh, we are all done for because we've all sinned, uh, which is true, of course, that they've all sinned. But listen to the response. He said to me, he answered me and said, Listen to me, Ezra, 
and I will instruct you and will admonish you once more. For this reason, the Most High has made not one world, but two. Inasmuch as you have said that the righteous are not many but few, while the ungodly abound, hear the explanation for this. If you have just a few precious stones, will you add to them lead and clay? I said, Lord, how could that be? And he said to me, not only that, but ask the earth and she will tell you. Defer to her and she will declare it to you. Say to her, you produce gold and silver and bronze and also iron and lead and clay. But silver is more abundant than gold and bronze than silver and iron than bronze and lead than iron and clay than lead. Judge, therefore, which things are precious and desirable, those that are abundant or those that are rare. I said, O sovereign Lord, what is plentiful is of less worth, for what is more rare is more precious. He answered me and said, Consider within yourself what you have thought, for the person who has what is hard to get rejoices more than the person who has what is plentiful so also will be the judgment that I have promised, for I will rejoice over the few who shall be saved, because it is they who have made my glory to prevail now, and through them my name has now been honored. I will not grieve over the great number of those who perish, for it is they who are now like a mist and are similar to a flame and smoke They are set on fire and burn hotly and are extinguished. Well, perhaps you've wondered, I've heard people say this all my life. How can it be that, you know, in heaven, all the tears are wiped away and everybody's all happy and everything. And yet you're quite aware that um, a bunch of people didn't go to heaven, but went to the lake of fire. And people's answers, oh, I don't know. How can that be? Because they cannot imagine uh, both happening at one time. And yet God here, God himself, this is the epitome of all righteousness. He says, I will not grieve over the number of those who perish. For it is they who are now like a mist and are similar to a flame and smoke. They are set on fire and burn hotly and are extinguished. Well, if it is the godly thing to do to not be concerned about those, to not grieve about those who do perish in that judgment, then how could the righteous uh, believers, having been glorified and going to live in eternal life with God, how could they grieve over them? So the question here is sort of a test of our mindset. Do we have God's mindset already about this or not? And again, I did talk recently, whether I've published it yet, I can't remember. I'm sorry. But there is, you notice here, these people are extinguished. They are put out. They are annihilated. They do not burn forever. Uh, And we did talk about some who do, or at least I'll get to that really quickly. Um, So I can't remember if that's in an episode I published or not. So sorry if I had a manager who could sit here and tell me, uh, then I would, uh, I would appear smarter about my own podcast. So now from Second uh, Ezra's chapter 8, next chapter, same book. And they're still in this uh, very long discussion. And it is fascinating, by the way, this long discussion be- between Ezra and God back and forth about, uh, hey, this world kind of sucks. What's up with that? <laughs> you know, this sort of thing that they have. Uh, it's fascinating. I love it. And so in verse 1 of 2 Esdras chapter 8, he answered me and said, The Most High made this world for the sake of many, but the world to come for the sake of only a few. But I tell you a parable, Ezra, just as when you ask the earth, it will tell you that it provides a large amount of clay from which earthenware is made, but only a little dust from which the gold comes. So is the course of the present world. Many have been created but only a few shall be saved. Well, this language should sound very familiar. Many are called, but few are chosen. Uh, This kind of language from Jesus and a few other statements. Uh, This, again, you know, I don't read this because it's foreign to the Bible. I read it because it has things in common with the Bible message. But now, back to the question, how does God... uh, 
value people. Because remember, in this discussion, Ezra was grieving over how bad off the world is and what a mess things are and how everybody sinned. So I want to back up a little bit into Ezra's, uh, to Ezra's chapter 7, the one we read first, and just read verses 75 through 77, because I find this uh, very compelling. Uh, this is Ezra, Ezra talking. I answered and said, If I have found favor in your sight, O Lord, show this also to your servant, whether after death, as soon as every one of us yields up the soul, we shall be kept in rest until those times come when you will renew the creation, or whether we shall be tormented at once. He answered me and said, I will show you that also, but do not include yourself with those who have shown scorn or number yourself among those who are tormented. For you have a treasure of works stored up with the Most High, but it will not be shown you until the last times. Now, uh, I, I cannot go on with this passage because I'll be on it for a week. Uh, what happens next is, is fascinating. But this part here is so important because Ezra, as he's talking to God, he's realizing we are such a mess and our sins are immense. And yet God says, hey, wait a minute. You be sure that you don't count yourself among those that I have found scornful and that you don't count yourself among those to be tormented uh, because you have a treasure of works stored up with the Most High. Well, I hope, uh, dear listener, that this reminds you of the words of Jesus, who's talking about having your treasure stored up in heaven where nothing can happen to it. Again, you, perhaps you see the allusions to the discussions here, which is uh, why I think this is a particularly worthy passage to be looking at. And so God makes a distinction between Ezra, who recognizes that Ezra is a sinner, and yet the others that he considers scornful and worthy of um, being thrown into the fire. So this is not some absolutist type of position here. You understand that God recognizes, yeah, everybody's sin, but there's a difference between the sinners. And some he doesn't view as being scornful. And some he doesn't view as worthy of torment. Because they have treasures stored up with God. They, they have done things, lived in ways, thought in ways, believed in ways. They've been loyal in ways. They have obeyed. And God sees that and he's keeping track of that. Now, at this point, obviously, somebody's going to get really nervous. Oh, are you teaching a work salvation? Uh, listen, I don't know anybody who teaches a works salvation. That, oh, if you do this, that, and the other thing, that makes God have to give you eternal life uh, as a fair payment for what you've done for God. I don't know anybody who teaches that. I know a lot of people that accuse other people of teaching that, but I don't know any church that teaches that. And that's part of why we're looking at this today, because so many just have these goofy doctrines that cannot be well supported from Scripture if you do an exhaustive study of them. And of course, the reason they thrive is because so few of us do exhaustive studies of anything. So uh, back again in 2 Ezra, this time we're going to jump to the end, uh, chapter 16, and I'm going to read uh, verses 68 through 73. The burning wrath of a great multitude is kindled over you. They shall drag some of you away and force you to eat what was sacrificed to idols. And those, this is talking about a, a time of great tribulation. And those who consent to eat shall be held in derision and contempt and shall be trampled underfoot. For in many places and in neighboring cities, there shall be a great uprising against those who fear the Lord. They shall... Uh, be like maniacs, sparing no one, but plundering and destroying those who continue to fear the Lord. For they shall destroy and plunder their goods and drive them out of house and home. Then the tested quality of my elect shall be manifest like gold is tested by fire. 
So here again we have, he's talking about the quality of people. He's talking about uh, gold as a metaphor being tested by fire. Well, here literally what he's talking about is people being tested by persecution and the mistreatment of other humans. And yet, apparently, this is important to God that they would be tested and what kind of people they are would be shown. Now to Ecclesiasticus, also called the Wisdom of Sirach. It is um, also an apocryphal book. In Ecclesiasticus 29, verses 10 and 11. Lose your silver for the sake of a brother or a friend, and do not let it rust under a stone or be lost. Lay up your treasure according to the commandments of the Most High, and it will profit you more than gold. This is just more language in the same ballpark. Here he's, he's not talking about the people being valued as if they were gold or silver, but he's, he's giving people the value of money. It's better to lose it for the sake of a brother or a friend than to end up just letting it be lost eventually. And again, that, that better than having money is to store up treasures in heaven. Well, one of the points I want to make here is I think one of the ideas is the people themselves were supposed to be treasures. In fact, that, that sort of takes me to the next verse, which is Psalm 116, verse 15. It says, precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his saints or his holy ones. The saints doesn't mean like, uh, you know, Catholic church uh, heroes. This, this is just the word for holy ones, the people that God considers holy. And so when they die, that means something to God. Remember in uh, 2 Esdras, he said, I'm not going to be upset about the people that don't make it, uh, that who, who are unworthy, unrighteous. But as to his holy ones, when they die, it's very precious to God. And then again, uh, there's a, a whole line. If you were to go search, I'll put this in the show notes. If you go search, search the word chaff in the Bible, you'll find a long list of, you know, our God like chaff blows the wicked away. This idea of, of worthless. And if, if you don't know, uh, when you are processing grain, uh, like with the, the treading of the wheat, under the wheel or under the feet of the oxen. The chaff is that outer skin, that outer husk over the uh, grain, the meat of the grain itself, and it is worthless. Also, if you eat it, uh, it's very hard to digest. Uh, that's a lot of where the gluten problem people have comes from that. And uh, that's about the end of my expertise about gluten, so please don't write asking me questions. Uh, but the idea that chaff is mentioned a lot of times and like chaff would be burned up in the fire, blown away in the wind, and so forth. And so this idea that God is letting worthless people go, just letting them go. So this idea, the difference between worthy and unworthy, between worthless, useless, and useful, and worthy, and valuable, and treasure, and all this sort of things. Uh, look in Matthew 10, verse 11. Jesus giving uh, directions to his apostles Whatever town or village you enter, search there for some worthy person and stay at their house until you leave. So even the apostles were supposed to be able to understand what kind of person Jesus was talking about and to be able to spot that kind of person and to tell them from the others. Uh, Matthew ten thirty seven, Anyone who loves their father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Anyone who loves their son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. So here he's giving some very practical measures by which you can tell which kind of person he values as worthy of eternal life and which kind he does not. And so it's a matter of priorities here, isn't it? If you love your father or mother more than Jesus, well, that just won't do. Or even if you love your son or daughter more, that won't do either. Now, the next verse, Matthew 10, 38, whoever does not take up their cross and follow me is not worthy of me. And I think this is so radical. I mean, here, here it is in unmistakable words from Jesus' mouth. He expects us to do as he did. 
He expects us to lay down our lives, to sacrifice, sacrifice ourselves for what is right and true and honorable and just and holy. But yet so many Christians, so many churches teach that, well, no, you don't have to do that. You can still be um, worthy of eternal life without having to be like Jesus in that way. And that is such a lie, yet it is such a very popular lie. Luke 20, verse 34 through 36. Jesus replied, The people of this age marry and are given in marriage, but those who are considered worthy of taking part in the age to come and in the resurrection from the dead will neither marry nor be given in marriage. And they can no longer die, for they are like the angels. They are God's children, since they are children of the resurrection. And boy, that's a juicy topic about how all that works. But what I want to focus on here is this word, this word worthy. And here specifically, it's they're not con- the, about those considered worthy of taking part in the age to come and in the resurrection from the dead. So this idea of worthiness gets into the eternal reward. It's not that, well, you can be worthy here, but not get that reward. No, they go together. It's also, well, you could be unworthy here, but still get that reward anyway. And the answer is no, 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 no. That's not how it works. So listen to all these urgings from Paul to his various audiences. Ephesians 4, verse 1. As a prisoner for the Lord, then I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. And doesn't that parallel nicely with, I urge you to live a life in the image and likeness in which you were created. I think being put here on this planet is the same as being set up with an expectation that we should live worthy of the image of God. Philippians 1.27 Whatever happens, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Then whether I come and see you or only hear about you in my absence, I will know that you stand firm in the one spirit, striving together as one for the faith of the gospel. So I won't know that you're doing well if you don't live in a manner worthy of the gospel. He makes no excuses for expecting high conduct from them. And again, this is a message that would be practically impossible to get through to so many of the churches, even though it comes from Jesus and his authorized apostles. And it's in the Bible that they claim they love. <laughs> Colossians 1.10. Uh, this is right in the middle of a thing, but you'll see the nugget I want to pull out here. Uh, dot, 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 so that you may live a life worthy of the Lord and please him in every way, bearing fruit in every good work, growing in the knowledge of God. So that's what's considered worthy from God, that you're pleasing to him in every way, bearing fruit in every good work and growing in the knowledge. And notice this word every, please him in every way, not just some ways, bearing fruit in every good work, not just some good works. Uh, this, it's not, well, my Jack, my, my, uh, my gift is to make cookies for the Bible group. That's the way that I bear fruit. Uh, that's my good work. (laughs) Are you nuts? You're supposed to do all manner of good work. Uh, you know, Ephesians two, uh, say by grace, right. And not by works. And yet we were created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which he appointed beforehand or something like that. This was what it meant to be in the image and likeness of God, that you'd be doing these same things that Jesus did. And I don't remember if he made cookies for the Bible group or not, but uh, we certainly remember a lot of great things that he did and the spirit with which he did it. First Thessalonians two, verse 12. And again, this is in the middle of a sentence, but you'll get the point here. Uh, Dot, dot, dot encouraging, comforting, and urging you to live lives worthy of God who calls you into his kingdom and glory. You know, if you're not going to live worthy of God, what business do you have in his glory? 
I mean, think about that. Second Thessalonians 1, verse 11. With this in mind, we constantly pray for you that our God may make you worthy of his calling and that by his power he may bring to fruition your every desire for goodness and your every deed prompted by faith. Again, here's that every word twice. Your every desire for goodness, that that should be brought to fruition. All of it, not just some of it. And your every deed prompted by faith. This is your your works, your, your doings, that these things should be brought to fruition. And that's what he considered worthy. And then I have one more, Revelation 3, verse 4. And this is by word of warning, Jesus writing to one of the congregations in that uh, area up in Turkey, modern-day Turkey in that region. Yet you have a few people in Sardis who have not soiled their clothes. They will walk with me dressed in white, for they are worthy. So this has uh, turned out to be rather a shorter talk uh, as I've just gone um, machine gunning through this list of uh, passages. But I think this is an extremely radical view, and it should not be. It should be, well, yeah, duh, Jack, you just read the scriptures. You just read stuff right out of the Bible. It should be nothing there controversial. And yet a lot of the churches have got things so twisted that this is exceedingly controversial. They will say, oh, no, God loves everybody. Uh, okay, well, how are you going to answer that Esau I have hated and Jacob I have loved? How are you going to answer that God hates the violent man and all those things, six that, are, uh, that he hates and seven that are detestable to him? How are you going to answer all that? I want to talk about the silver and the gold because I find great hope in this. If you're like me, you have faults. Hopefully you think you're like me in that way. <laughs> I certainly have them. You know, the passage we read from two Ezra's, uh, Ezra there believed he had them. And I think of the prophets, you know, woe to me for I'm a man of unclean lips, says the one. Uh, in, when he's in the presence of God, he's like, uh-oh, I know what's wrong with me, right? Well, we should all be like that. We should all recognize our faults. And maybe we are not the most perfect among believers. But these passages all have, uh, or many of them have one thing in common. That is that they mention not only the gold, but also the silver. And I think this gives us some realistic hope if you want to say somebody like um, Moses, you know, the most humble who had ever lived, uh, according to the, the passage there about him, uh, at least as of the time it was written, that seems to be the claim. And I, and I don't doubt that, mind you. And yet Moses had his issues, right? But if we're going to say, oh, the most humble man, even though he has his issues, well, that, that would be gold. Moses would be a gold kind of guy. Well, okay. Well, maybe I'm not a Moses, but could I be a silver kind of guy? Because silver still seems to have a place in eternal life with God. And I find this very encouraging. And I also know that some things about me are like gold and some are more like silver and some are more like wood or, or hay. Uh, we are compartmentalized in our lives we are not, uh, even if you can do one thing perfectly, uh, you cannot do everything perfectly. Even if you can give the perfect, kind, and wise, and patient answer to your, um, to your pain-in-the-neck neighbor, that doesn't mean that you're perfectly kind and wise and patient with everybody in every kind of situation. You understand what I'm saying, I hope? And yet, uh, these passages are consistent with having not just gold, it wasn't just the gold all the time. Imagine going to the Olympics and all the turmoil and, and sweat and pain that you have to go through to succeed there and getting a gold, I mean, a silver medal and then being uh, 
greeted with contempt by your country when you got home. That, well, that wasn't the goal. That doesn't count. Uh, that apparently is not the kind of person we're dealing with, uh, with God. I remember this, of course, from Rocky IV when he's against Drago, the Russian, and the crowd will accept only victory from uh, Drago, and he would be a total failure if he were to lose the fight. Um, so there was no room to be the second best fighter in the world in that story. But I don't think that's how it is with God. And of course, how could it be? Because of all the people in heaven, if anybody's going to be gold, who's that going to be? That's Jesus, right? I mean, in a sense, he doesn't count because he's God. He belongs there anyway. Yet he also was man and he earned that gold medal, uh, so to speak. Of course, I'm waxing metaphorical here. So if that's what it means to be gold, oh boy, we're all in the mess because none of us even comes close to stacking up to Jesus. But this gives me a great passage, that, uh, not, not passage, it gives me great uh, encouragement uh, that the silver is mentioned also. And we've already discussed in, in practical terms people like Nathaniel when Jesus was in the business of calling his apostles. And here comes Nathaniel walking the one day and he says, Look, a true Jew in whom there is nothing false. And you can really understand something here if you put your mind to it, because it cannot be true that Nathaniel had zero false beliefs or understandings. He may not have understood logic or probability or mathematics perfectly well. He may not have understood the nature of the universe or even of how his own body works. Certainly there were things he had wrong. So what was Jesus talking about? Well, I don't know exactly. But yet, it matters what Jesus thinks about you. And in Jesus' way of looking at this man, there was nothing false in that man. And what a commendation that is. And so I think we have got to get where we're looking at ourselves like Jesus sees us and not as the world sees us or how we might otherwise see ourselves, that there is room for gold, there's room for silver. Uh, bronze can be useful. Is it worthy of a place in eternal life? Well, that's a great question. I'm not sure how those passages would be broken down if you were to ask these authors, uh, what exactly do you mean by this? How exactly would this map on to the lesson you're trying to teach? Uh, perhaps I'll keep looking. Maybe I'll find something someday, some better source uh, for these things. Perhaps some of what we already read in these extra biblical uh, books are the sources that prompted these passages. And that's all fascinating stuff, but that's a bit beside the point of today's uh, discussion. So that's what I wanted to cover today. Uh, amazingly, we've come just shy of an hour, uh, which for me seems like I must be cheating somehow to be ending this short but uh, the good news is I can get this one uh, posted very quickly. And then from there, perhaps we can get on to finishing discuss the discussion from Hebrews 11 and 12. And then very soon, I would also like to start the discussion of what all has changed since the first century uh, for in the lives of believers, in the experience of believers, and then what all was supposed to change. And this, uh, to me, is a very fundamental topic of major importance and yet so few people seem to be uh, interested in discussing it, perhaps for great fear, perhaps for fear of having their apple cart overturned, uh, perhaps for fear that they're already wrong and don't want to know how they're wrong. Or maybe they just think, uh, that's stupid. Uh, of course, nothing has changed. Everything's exactly the same. In which case, it's very hard to uh, explain why there are no apostles today and why when your elders anoint somebody with oil and pray over them, they don't always get well. So uh, we'll get into that uh, soon, too. And um, I'll let that be it for today. Thanks so much for joining in.